We talking rom-com, we talking action, we talking drama and movie classics. Whatever you want, yo, we have it. Cause we talking movies on a podcast. So I married a film critic. So I married a film critic. So I married a film critic. Hey honey, I just wanna so talk I about the movie like casually. Critic. You don't have to so bring up very cinematography. Honestly, let's just talk about like how the characters were fun. Married a film critic. So I married a film critic. So I married Welcome to So I Married a Film Critic, a discussion between a professional film critic and lecturer and me, his wife of 20 years, who just likes to watch movies for fun. I'm your co-host, Julia. This is Bear the Film Critic. Hello, everyone. And tonight, we thought it would be a good time to die hard. It's Christmas Eve in L.A. California. Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do, okay? A New York cop, John McLean, has come to see his wife. Instead, he's going to have to save her. Sit down. Within this skyscraper high above the city, 12 terrorists have declared war. They're about to be told a lesson in the real use of power. There is brilliant because I am interested in the $640 million in your vault. As they are ruthless. And I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. Now, the last thing McLean wants. Think, damn it, think. Is to be a hero. Where's Holly? Hey, Where? But he doesn't have a choice. What does he think he's doing? <laughs> John. They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. He's inside? Who is he? Who are you then? You have lost troublesome for a security guard. Sorry, wrong guess, huh? Would you like to go for double jeopardy? Do you really think you have a chance against our sadistic cowboy? Yippee guy, mother. party by mistake who knew oh man so we're gonna like i guess should we talk about the controversial issue about whether this is a christmas film or not every year when somebody brings this up i think i think they're just doing it to get like comments and likes and shares because everyone gets so like it's this is so, a big so issue for outraged. people. It's it's I love it. All the stuff that's going on in the world right now. This is the thing that gets people really worked up. Mm-hmm. Whether this is a Christmas movie, I guess we should save it to the end to talk about that. Should we leave them in suspense or should we well, should we get to think? the bottom of this right now? Sure. 
I say, but you who know, cares? But you know what? You know, if we're going by that rule, like it's a story that's set during Christmas. Okay, you know what else is a Christmas movie? Eyes Wide Shut. You know what else is a Christmas movie? Lethal Weapon. And that's fine. Whatever. Because, <laughs> you know, you can only watch George Bailey and then every time the bell rings, you can only watch that so many times. And that's like, hey, how about Gremlins? How about Lethal Weapon? How about Die Hard? Why don't, why does every Christmas movie have to be, you know, sugary, cutesy? Why can't it be about how sometimes Christmas is hard? Christmas is a hard time for people. Why not tell this tale of, you know... Of terrorism? Well, I was going to say how an angel by the name of John McClane went and performed a Christmas miracle on the Nakatomi building. Wow. <laughs> Kids, gather around. Uncle Barry will tell you about how John McClane saved all those Barabons. Well, actually, he didn't save the Barabons. And he... Well, he actually slaughtered all those terrorists. But he got back together with his wife and they had the merriest Christmas of them all. And a very special Okay, I'm I'm reaching. I'm really reaching. But look, it's it's fine. It's a Christmas movie. It's a great Christmas movie. Who yeah, exactly. Who cares? It's so ridiculous that this is this is like a real like people like really get into this. Like just let it let it happen. It's fine. Not every Christmas movie needs to be, you know, Dickens or Yeah, yeah. Let's get into it because our movie is two hours long. Well, this episode's not going to be two hours long, but... Well, no, but there's a lot to talk about. Oh. this is a... I mean, this is one of our favorites. Oh, we're going to go... We're going to go scene by scene. No, oh, yeah. Cracking no. the knuckles. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> going to get my undershirt here. Going to make fists with my toes. Okay, oh, now I'm ready. Okay. Well, our movie opens with John McClane on an airplane flying from New York to LA to be with his family for Christmas, and he hates to fly. And the guy next to him, he's like, you know, when you get where you're going, you just take your shoes off and make fists with your toes. Works every time. And I'm like, no, who came up with this? This is BS. As someone who used to, as you know all too well, you married someone who used to have a really real problem with flying. Uh, White knuckle doesn't even begin to be to describe it. Uh, The first, what, 10 years of our marriage? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk all about that tonight. Anyway, <laughs> all that to say, Fisters, it's crap. Okay, what what I think what actually does work, I will say for those of you who are in a similar situation, and it's nothing to joke about, and that's a whole other conversation about how to get over it, but the fist with your toes thing, while you're in flight, take off your shoes, no. keep, your, keep your socks on, rub your feet against the ground, get a sense of the floor. I'm just completely serious oh, about okay. this. Leave your socks on though. Yeah, leave your socks on. Yeah, don't be like, don't John McClane it. Leave your socks on. But like seriously, like either rub your feet no, against the floor. Don't be Adele Griffith. That's our previous episode. I hope you listened to our special Planes, Trains, and Automobiles episode. No, but seriously, like it, it's it's about this sense of security because, you know, when you're in a plane and you're nervous, it's about crunching, you know, your hand and you're just your ball of nerves. But if you get the sense of where the floor is and I get a sense of what the ground is, it helps. So okay. take it from me. Yes. And take it from me. He really did have such a fear that um, I think, I don't know, the circulation in my arm never really quite returned. <laughs> Something to remember me by. <laughs> okay. So John McClane gets off. By the, the way, plane. he's played by Bruce Willis. Yeah, I know. Did you say that yet? Well, I don't think you did. Okay. This is Bruce Willis, everybody. Yes, Bruce Willis. Yeah. In his first big movie. No. Oh. No, this is his third big movie. Oh. 
<laughs> Bruce had made, you know. This is why you're the film critic. No, 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 no. I just, uh, I don't know. On the one hand, I want to set it up properly because this the, the, the success of this movie is one of the greatest revenge. There's no greater revenge than success. And the success of this movie is a great career business revenge story. Willis had done two movies as the lead for Blake Edwards. One was called Blind Date, which was a surprise hit. I've never thought it was very good. I'm a big fan of the second film he did called Sunset. It's a bit of a cult film. Actually, it's it's not. I'm trying to start the cult right here, right now. I don't think the film is bad, although it was a flop when it came out and critics just really kind of circled their wagons around it. So when this movie was announced, Willis was, I mean, he was paid $5 million by the studio. And the studio is going, why? He is beloved for moonlighting. He is not a film actor. He's a television actor. As the prior film established, he can't open a movie on his name alone. And this movie had the stench of death around it. It was a summer film, but there was a lot of sense like the studio doesn't believe in it. Everybody was kind of embarrassed. Like, why did they pay him $5 million? Famously on the original poster, you could he's barely on the poster. It's like the building is blocking out his face. So they went into the summer thinking like this is going to be – this is clearly going to be one of the biggest bombs of the summer of 88, which is the summer of Rambo 3, Crocodile Dundee 2, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And lo and behold, it's defied every expectation. All right. Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Everybody. I think the ph- the phenomenon started in, with Moonlighting with this film. It surprised everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, I was only eight at the time, so it wasn't surprising me, but – you know, I can appreciate it now. Prior to this movie, what did you know him best as? Friends, right? Friends? Yeah, you know him from Friends, right? I don't know. I get, no. Did you? I mean, had had you seen the whole nine yards? Yes. Okay. I think I did. With Matthew I Perry. Know who Bruce Willis was. Yeah, but okay. I mean, okay, but was the Sixth Sense your first Bruce Willis movie? Seriously, I'm I'm just curious. I don't know. I think I don't think you, you were. This guy wasn't on your radar. No, it was like, right? oh, he's married to Demi Moore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you. My point. <laughs> okay. Well, back to the movie. Um, we get to see the Nakatomi Plaza Christmas party. And yeah, I don't know. This is like a pretty swanky office. Oh, it's it's a debaucherous Christmas party. I mean, it's there's a lot of snow even though it's LA, if you know what I mean. <laughs> lots of snow at this party. Lots of, it's like, it's time to let loose. We had a good year. And apparently the Nakatomi Corporation is controversial because of its international dealings. That was something, I, it was a detail that jumped out at me. I don't know, watching it with you, like maybe for the 30th, 40th time. But you get the sense, yeah, this is like, this is their big annual Christmas party. It's a huge building. And in real life, it was the Fox Tower. This was, the, this was like where all the business deals were done. So we meet Holly Gennaro, played by Bonnie Bedelia, who is Bruce Willis's wife, going by her maiden name. And she's getting hit on by Harry Ellis, one of the, uh, her coworkers. Ellis, the original Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. Hart yes. Faulkner. I love him in this. He is just so full of himself. He later became a director. And prior to this, I knew him as the guy who was just completely ridiculously infatuated with Supergirl in the movie of the same name. Mm. Yeah, I like Bart Bachner. Yeah. He, he did his thing as a character actor and then he became a director. He's really good at playing the slimy oh, guy. He's great in this. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So then Holly calls home and talks to her housekeeper slash nanny, Paulina. And... This is where you were like, this is just too many characters. Yeah, does this movie need Paulina the maid? And eventually they, they find a use a, a story use for her later, but it's like, okay, this is a lot like an Irwin Allen disaster movie. There's there's like twenty six main characters and maybe what, a hundred speaking parts. There's a <laughs> lot of 
this movie could be a little tighter. Yeah. So we find out, though, that, you know, they're separated kind of. And, you know, Holly tells Paulina, like, why don't you just make up the guest room just in case he's going to stay? And then, you know, Holly, though, like slams down the photo of like the family with John Mm -hmm. in it. And it's like, okay, there's some we got some issues going on. It's not marital bliss over here. Speaking of excess characters, although this one I wish the movie actually had more of, we get Argyle the cab driver. Yeah. Oh, the limo well, driver, rather. Yeah. And John meets Argyle at the airport, and he's hilarious. He's one of the best side characters that this movie has. This movie knows what it has because every the film gets so violent and intense, but every time they cut back to him, it always works. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, like the like the movie already has more than enough comic relief. But whenever they just cut for for a reaction shot to him, because it's always a total whatever he's doing is a complete contrast to the story, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice little tonal shift whenever they cut to this actor and this character. So he's talking to John, and he's wanting to know what's up with with his life. And we find out that Holly's been in L.A. for six months, and that John didn't think her job would last, and that you know eventually she bring the kids back to New York, but that's not happening. Apparently Holly is very successful. So yes. And John McClane is a tough New York cop. Yeah. So Argyle is like, Hey man, you know, why don't you go check it, check out the situation. I will wait for you in the parking garage. You just call me and let me know, you know what you want to do. And at one point Argyle says, let me put on some Christmas music. And he puts on run DMC's Christmas time in Hollis Queens, which I love so much. But the, the, obviously the joke is that, you know, John McClane is old school. Hip hop is not his thing. It, I think it's a nice little spiritual cousin spiritual cousin to a scene in The Last Boy Scout, which came out just a couple of years later. Very similar character where Bruce Willis is tied to a chair. He's being tortured by bad guys. His face is all bloodied. And this vicious villain gets in his face and he says, I want to hear you scream. And Bruce Willis says, play some rap music. <laughs> Love it. That always makes me think of this moment in Die Hard. <laughs> okay, so John, this is where he finds out that Holly has changed her name to, to her maiden name. Yeah. Yeah. So he heads up to the party, but you can tell he's like he's ch- he's casing the joint. He's yeah. checking things out, you know. He's I don't think cops can ever turn it off. And you know, this is a widescreen film. Yon Bont shot this film. This is Jan de Bont before he directed Speed and Twister and some other films like Speed 2. But Jan de Bont and McTiernan, they make this a widescreen movie. This film looks great. It has a real sense of scale. This building just seems like it's looming over the whole world. And when you're up in the 30th floor with everybody else, you do get the sense of like, okay, you are, this is where the power meetings happen. Mm-hmm. So one a funny little thing though that um, John does, he, you know, he's seeing all these crazy things that he doesn't see in New York, and he's always like, "Ah, oh, effing California." <laughs> yeah, this movie has a real Jersey attitude towards California. Yes. And I love it. I love it. <laughs> Which I think is funny. Okay, so he meets Mister Takagi, who's the head of this uh, Nakatomi Corporation, and he takes John to Holly's office, and Ellis is in there just. Sniffing some coke. Or he's got a cold. What up? We never see it. He, he might have a cold. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it's the 80s. It's not like people... Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. Hey, do you think... He's El- like, you missed some. <laughs> exactly. Do you think Ellis ever tried to date Holly before? 
You think that's just been like kind of an I mean this yes, is Yes, you've been flirting with her this whole time. Well, flirting it's that's a nice way of putting it. Do you think like, you know, in the in the pre, you know, this is decades before me too movement. Do you think like this is a guy who's just constantly like, "Come on, let's go out." Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just like so persistent and just annoying. Because it's established she's using him for his 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 private bathroom. Yeah, no. Yeah, cuz John is like, "I think he is flirting with you." It has an eye eye on you, and she's like, "Well, I have my eye on his private bathroom." Yeah. So she's she's wise to it. Who do you think is supplying him with his coke? Oh. <laughs> hmm. Do you think it's Holly? No. She got a side Mr. hustle. Mr. Takagi. <laughs> <laughs> he just like has a stash in his office. He's like, if anybody needs a hit, you know, take whatever you want. It'll keep you going all night as long as you're getting your work done. Again, it was the eighties. <laughs> no, Mrs. Takagi, I think is is le- I think he's a legit businessman. I think if anything, he seems he seems like okay. Let's let the let's let the troops run loose a little bit. So they've been working really hard, but you do get the sense of like, okay, man, it's it's very Wolf of Wall Street up in here. Yeah. So Holly comes into her office and sees John for the first time, and you can tell like she's she's definitely still into him. Of course, it's her husband. No, I know, but they haven't seen each other in a while. Yeah, he's been a res- yeah, I've been busy, you know, busting New York scum and backlog of criminals six miles long. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Ellis is like, hey, Holly, you know, show him your watch. Uh, it's a Rolex. The way he says it's a Rolex, I swear you could impose that and make that a Rolex ad. The way Ellis says it, it's so great. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a lot of actors in this movie who, you know, they're, they've got fi- somewhere between like 15, 20 minutes of screen time and it's in these little increments and they just steal their moments. And I, I just, I love it when a film recognizes that because, you know, when you have a star vehicle, it's like, okay, it's all about the star. No, in this case, like it's, 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 it's Bruce Willis's movie, but it feels like an ensemble piece. Okay, so Holly takes John to kind of wash up a little bit and they have a fight over her name. And what they each think their idea of their marriage should be. And it sounds like he wants a more traditional relationship. Yeah. And she does not. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, I know what your idea of our marriage should be. Yeah, because he's, he's New York. He's New, he's Jersey. He's very traditional conservative in his views. And she's she's a, she's a California girl. Oh, my gosh. I'm hey. not going to stay in the East Coast. <sighs> that is not her. Oh my gosh, man. What are you no, doing? No, that is so not... I'm going to go here and have a career. You stay over there and just play a cop, okay? <laughs> she's not a California girl. <laughs> she's, she's not. She's like a take charge executive. No, she's great. She's great. I mean, it, the thing is, on the one hand, I think it's... I kind of admire that they even tried this because, I mean, let's face it, that's that's hard on any marriage. I mean, being a police officer from people we know who've been like in in you know the the you know military service or even cops, it's obviously such. I mean, it's it's like a whole other life doing that. It's not just like a job you walk away from or walk in and out. No, of. but he could have transferred to the L.A. Police Department. But he didn't want to, and I get it. He's a, you know. I know, but I'm just saying he could have been supportive of her career and kept his family together. I think he was supportive of it, but it's like, let's try this. And also, maybe their marriage was rocky, so it's like, well, let's give each other a break. Mm. A long break. <laughs> Thousands of miles of yeah, a break. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's okay. Well, here we have now the bad guys show up. We have about a 12-person crew, and they just shoot the front desk guy and the security guard, and now they're just taking charge of this building. So... 
There's uh they lock out the elevator from the lobby to floor 29. And so nobody can leave. And then this is where Hans Gruber joins the party. This is Alan Rickman in his film debut listeners. Um, Whenever I hear this, I mean, it's something I have to be reminded of. And even watching the movie, it's like, this is his first movie? He was a Broadway actor. He was in Dangerous Liaisons on Broadway and critically acclaimed. I don't know if they couldn't get a bigger actor or if they just thought, oh, this guy, you know, let's give him a shot. I don't know how he landed this role. You know, but it figured, I mean, let's face it, to be stereotypical of the 80s, it's like Christopher Walken, Dennis Hopper. They got Alan Rickman. And Rickman is so confident and nuanced and interesting. You, this does not seem like a first perform, first time performance. Willis seems a little green at times, although he's excellent in this too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I, I'm always just blown away. Like, this is this is a fantastic performance. In fact, it might be the best like evil henchman, big bad figure that I can think of in these kinds of movies. I mean. I mean, we talked about First Blood a couple episodes back, and we talked about how good Brian Dennehy's in that. But I mean, this is this is oh, to me no. the top Hans of that. Hans Gruber is way scarier. This is the top of the list, yeah, because he's scary, but he's funny, he's charming, and he's complex. And Rickman gives him complexities that aren't always there in the script. Mm-hmm. All right, well, they've cut the power to the building, and now now we see John barefoot squishing his toes in the carpet, and he's just like, oh, well, it really works. It's a fantasy, folks. There's no truth to this. So I've he, tried it. It doesn't. It doesn't mean anything. Like the plane has landed. You're at home. Of course, you're like, oh, that feels good. Of course, of course, it does. <laughs> you're not flying anymore. Exactly. I mean, look, look get, take a bubble bath while you're at it. See how good that feels too. It doesn't matter. You can't take a bubble bath when you're on a plane. Believe me, I've tried. Well, so John calls Argyle, and he's like, you know, what? what I don't know yet if I'm going to need your assistance. So, But Argyle's just in the back of this limo with this huge teddy bear, just like rocking out. And um, and then their phone line is cut. Do you think this is Argyle's first week on the job? Yeah. He said he's never done it before. Oh, that's his right. First that, day. Oh, that's right. It is his first day. You're right. Yeah. It definitely shows. Yeah. He's, yeah. Uh, he's really enjoying this. Yeah. <laughs> there's some... I mean, there's, there's a VCR back there. There's a fridge. Yeah. I mean, this is... Yeah. Yeah. He's like... Just remember that when you <laughs> sign for the, the tip. tip. Yeah. 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 This is like Lee Iacocca's limousine. Well, now we have machine gun fire. And so John is like, he's on high alert now. He doesn't think to put his shoes on or, you know, his shirt on or. I know. He just kind he doesn't of... put his shoes on. Yeah. But it's okay because, again, like the film is playing like, like okay, it's, it's tense. He's not going to think about his shoes at this moment. I think he would. I think anybody would. And by the way, here's the other thing too, because over the course of the film, Willis, you know, his clothing kind of disappears mm-hmm. over the course of the story. Mm-hmm. And this is an no office building. No one's complaining about that. I know. But let me just point this out. This is an office building in LA. Of course, the AC is cranked up. Yeah, but they cut the power. So still. And plus it's nighttime at one point. I mean, unless it's like a really balmy LA night. It's probably really cold in this building. He is sweating buckets. Well, Yix is climbing around an elevator shaft. I I think once the AC is cut, I don't think it stays super cold. But research it later. He's but. working at well, no, he's working up a sweat. I think I think this building would be really cold. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Well, 
the guys, the bad guys are checking all the offices, but um, thankfully we have a naked lady to distract the bad guys from John's location. I so, guess we should talk about this. Um, what's up with that? I mean, they were they were in an office getting it on Christmas party sex. I mean, I, again, like I've seen Wolf of Wall Street. I've heard stories. Okay, I used to work at Office Max, so I know crazy <laughs> things go on. <laughs> I get it, listeners. Really, I'm not that naive, but I, I mean, is is this? Is this like, I've had my eye on John for six months no, now. No, no. I think they're just drunk and high and they're like, yes, let's do this. <laughs> Gary from copying is so hot. <laughs> yeah. Tell you what, if I can just get him alone at the Christmas party just with some, some cavassier and some Coke, we're just going to go crazy. Yeah, totally. Why not? She's just, you know, throwing caution to the wind. I understand the Mile High Club. I really do. I don't get this. You don't get office like no, you know it's like a little taboo. They're they're like, hey, we're just gonna go in here. No, no, I don't. No, not unless there's like a lock on the door, and I, no, no, I can't. No, no, no okay. No. Well, freaks me out. The fact that I'm she sanitary. has no shirt on, though, that is the you reason. You think that's the reason why? Yeah, because the Boy, guy... what an 80s plot point. Yeah. Okay, he's not going to know it's Bruce Willis because we got a babe in this yeah. scene. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to get an R rating, so well done, guys. <laughs> so he escapes, and he goes to another floor, realizes there's no phone at all. And, this, and then this is where Hans Gruber addresses the group and talking about corporate greed. And this yes. is one of his like Nakatomi's legacy of greed around the globe, colonizing and exploiting Indonesia. Wow. Oh, wow. Man, this is like Enron. No, but we no, but this is just Hans Gruber making up crap to like Well, come on, this is before the internet. You don't you don't think he has any kind of pol- I mean, he was a he was a guerrilla soldier. Like you don't think like there's any truth to this? No, I'm not saying there's no truth to it. I'm saying he's smart enough to have this plan in place so that he can distract people from his real intentions, which is just to steal the bear bonds. So what you're saying is they could very well have knocked over the cor- the corporate headquarters of Toys R Us and it would have been the same thing? Yes. Your international way of promoting greed and plastic crap to kids everywhere. Yes. Plus, But we really plus, want your bear bonds. Yeah. Plus your giraffe, offensive to giraffes. It is an exploitation of giraffes worldwide. Yes. Giraffes do not talk nor wear clothing. And they shouldn't be in zoos. Should be free. And your in in your propaganda of telling kids that they should not grow up because if they did, they wouldn't be a Toys R Us kid. <laughs> you people are monsters. <laughs> yeah. He would come up with like something. Okay. So you, yeah. really, you really think it's – because I, I think he's yeah. political. No, because he even says like – when they're like, oh, like later on when he tells them all of these, you know, hostages he wants released, the guys are like, do you think that they're going to do it? He's like, who cares? <laughs> he does. He literally does not care. He's just a, yeah. a bank robber. Yeah. Got it. He's just a glorified bank robber. Hmm. That's what he, that's kind of what we find out. So he, he figures out who Takagi is, takes him to his office and yeah, he wants the 640 million in bear bonds. Yeah. And Takagi's like... I don't have the code that you want. Like, I, I don't even have access to that. It's all the way in Japan. I don't have that code. You broke in here to access our computer? 
Any information you could get when they wake up in Tokyo in the morning, they'll change it. You won't be able to blackmail our executive, threaten our profit. Sit down. I'm really not interested in your computer. But I need the code key because I am interested in the $640 million negotiable bearer bonds that you have locked in your vault. And the computer controls the vault. You want money? What kind of terrorist are you? <laughs> Who said we were terrorists? The code, please. It's useless to you. There are seven safeguards on our vault, and the code key is only one of them. You'll never get it open. Then there's no reason not to tell it to us. I told you. It's not over yet. a very nice suit, Mr. Takagi. To be ashamed to ruin it. I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. Give me the code. One. Two. Three. I don't know it. I'm telling you. Get on the jet to Tokyo and ask the chairman. I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. What I always think of is my dear friend Mike Mitchell, uh, actor and friend and author. Um, the first time I ever watched this movie with him, he'd never seen it before. And we had a DVD copy of it. And it had this featurette where you can edit this scene however you wanted. They have like a list of shots and there was all these like okay you like you could take all of the the footage that was accumulated and edit the scene however you want so like you cut you know get the cuts to Bruce Willis watching the scene as it happens cut to Alan Rickman cut to the actor sweating it out as Takagi and what we end up doing was there's i think there's about seven or eight different shots of Takagi getting his bl- brains blown out oh, no. so we just like Aww. took all seven of those shots in a row and just watched it from every angle Oh my gosh. It's hilarious. Because it's this dummy. You know, it's this dummy they rigged with, you know, exploding Ed. It's just, I mean, it was like a scene from Scanners. It was just like, you know, it was like seven shots of. We were just laughing hysterically. Oh, man. Okay. That's what happens when you let 21 year old boys edit a grown up film. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that they had like a real editor for this. They, indeed, they did. They did not trust us as editors, Sam. So. Hans ends up killing Takagi. Yes. And so now we, I think this is the moment where you you know that like he's serious. Yeah. And at this point, uh, McLean is saying it to himself. He does that often in this movie. He's like, Argyle, tell me you heard the shots. And there's a hilarious cut to Argyle in the back of the limo, talking to a babe, sitting next to his, the bear, blasting music. Yeah. And by the way, let's talk about the music because later on, Bruce Willis, John McLean has the line, who's driving that car, Stevie Wonder? He's listening to Stevie Wonder. Oh. Argyle is listening to Skeletons, by, which is one of my favorite 80s Stevie Wonder tunes. He's blasting Skeletons in the backseat of the limo. Yeah. 
I know. I do love all the cuts to Argyle. It's just, again, it's just dancing and laughing it's and like such having a party. A great contrast. Yeah. yeah from the rest of yeah, the movie. Because John's just like, oh my gosh, I'm dying up here. And yeah. Argyle's like getting jiggy like with living it. the dream. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So John does pull the fire alarm and the bad guys turn it off and call the cops and tell them, like, hey, that was an accident. Everything's fine. But then they know which fire alarm, like which floor he's on. Mm-hmm. And so the guy comes up and there's an epic like fight scene. Every action scene in this movie is big, but they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And these these one-on-one fight scenes, they are rough. I love that it's it's a brawl because something I was noticing today with action movies, and I, I you know, I love modern action movies, but most of the fights are very cromagra. You know, they're like there's a you know, or jujitsu, like it's a very specific fighting style. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you could okay, like you could tell this was choreographed, and even if even if it's something awesome like John Wick, you could tell okay, like there's the choreography. In this case, like no, I mean these look like these these are two people who are struggling to kill each other, and you know every every blow that's hit, it's like it's it's hard. Okay, um, but yeah, it's still good choreography in the sense that it's not just two dudes like rolling around on the it's ground great, but it, no, no no i agree no it's not it's not the ending of the postman i no. agree no yeah. but what, what i'm trying to say is that yeah it, it has that real like it's it's animalistic it's great mm-hmm. yeah so that guy in my notes i just wrote blondie because i don't know his name <laughs> <laughs> well this ends up being the brother of, of carl of carl played by yes. alexander goodenough yeah yeah so John wins this brawl, and now he has the walkie-talkie. He has all of Carl's brother's, you know, stuff. And so he puts him in the elevator and just writes on his his sweatshirt, now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. Little sadistic, don't you think? Well, <laughs> but it, I but- mean, it's funny, because, but it does give away that he's, you know, this element in the building that they didn't plan on and yeah you're right it's creating this sense of mystery because yeah. i mean obviously the truth is much much less intimidating he's a barefoot out of his depth cop who's got a gun and his wits and that's it yeah. and he's up against these guys yeah but now he has the walkie-talkie and so he's like taking notes on who all these guys are and yeah. he's writing down their names and but this part is the best he goes to the roof to transmit and He's trying to call nine one one. Oh, you love this! The walkie-talkie. First time I showed you this, this was the scene you laughed the hardest at. Because the lady, she's like, "This channel is reserved for emergencies only." And he's like, "No shit, lady! Do I look like I'm ordering a pizza?" <laughs> so they, the guys are like, they can hear him mm-hmm. transmitting, yeah. and they're like. He's on the roof. Like, go get him. So now there's a gunfight on the roof. And so the the 911 operators are like, all right, obviously something's going on. But, you know, they don't know what it is because they're, they're telling him they're going to report him to, like, the FCC for violations. He's like, good, report me. Come on down here. And so now we have uh, our cop played by Reginald Bell Bill Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. So he gets... He's brought into the movie and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's Al. Al is the name of the character, but even my notes are wrote, Carl Winslow gets in his car. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Winslow. It's with, a, yeah, it's named with Al. A, with apologies to Reginald Bill Johnson. I know you played more than one role in your long career. I apologize, but I still wrote, played by Carl Winslow. 
Now we have John in the air shaft. You know, he's just like running through the building and just trying to figure out ways to escape and how to like maneuver around these guys. And, you know, he lights his lighter to see, come out to the coast. We'll get together. We'll have a few laughs. Well done. Mm -hmm. That shot became um, a mural on the side of the Fox building um, the, the year the last Die Hard movie came out. I don't know if it's still oh. there, but it used to be this giant mural they had on the side of the building, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So Al shows up and he's just like, it all looks fine. You know, there's nothing, but I'll, I'll go in and talk to the, you know, the front desk guy. So he goes in there and that guy. The he, guy who looks like an evil Huey Lewis. Yes. Evil Huey Lewis. Well, most of these guys look like they could be backup singers in like 80s bands like Genesis or Kajagoogoo. Most of these guys look like they're – Yeah. Like when they're not terrorists, they're, you know, they're on the top 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he plays it off like, oh, yeah, go take a look around, whatever. Like he's actually really good at playing a fake security he's guard. He's really good at being a terrorist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good at his job. So finally, Al's just like, forget this. And, and, but, but, um, Bruce Willis is up, you know, up higher and he's, he breaks the window and he's drops he's, a corpse on yeah, the car. He's yeah. taking out some more bad guys. But it, it's cool because at, at first I wasn't always, after seeing the film a few times, I was made clear what goes on here because it's, it's McLean that drops the corpse, but then it's a different floor with a different terrorist firing at the police car because it's like, yes. okay, this guy. Knows what's up now that there's a corpse on his car. So it's like, let's kill this guy before he can call for backup. And while this scene, because it's pretty spectacular. So, because Carl Winslow's in reverse, he's like, bam, bam. <laughs> and there's a quick shot of Argyle back in the limo partying his ass off. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, and John's just like, welcome to the party, pal. You know, if they do a movie, like a spinoff movie that it's like Cosmopolis or that one with Tom Hardy a few years ago, where it's just a movie with Argyle in the back of the limo, I would totally watch that. Oh. Just like the Argyle side of Die Hard. That would be I hilarious. would be so on board with that. Yeah. Yeah. I would watch that. I think that'd be hysterical. And, you know, and he's like partying, he's talking to the babes, and he's like, you know, blasting the Janet Jackson videos. And you hear like the machine gun fire <laughs> distantly in the background. And you hear like people screaming, and you hear like the, the car and the helicopter. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, and you, you hear his boss like yelling at him, like, you're still at this one job, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. All right. So now the media is alerted, the cavalry is arriving. And John calls Hans on the radio, and this is where, um, you know, that Hans is kind of like, you're just some, you know, American who's watched too many action movies and too many westerns, too many westerns, yeah. And he's like, you know, what's your name? And he tells him his name is Roy Rogers. Yeah, yeah. And this is where his famous Yippie Kaye line first first plays. I don't know why you're censoring yourself, Jules. Just go for it. <laughs> you go you've for already it. given us you've already given us an R rating earlier, so just keep going, Jules. <laughs> you've already given us an R rating. It's an R rated movie. I mean, why can't this podcast be R rated? <laughs> so Powell talks to Oh I'm sorry, really quickly. Oh. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh. So so like the Yippie Kaye thing, it's it's not just that Bruce Willis says the line, watch Han's reaction, which is hysterical. Because he's so confused. Well, I think it's confusing. It's just like, okay. <laughs> like, is that a thing? <laughs> like, these Americans, man, they're weird with their wordplay. Yeah, very yeah. weird. 
So then we meet uh, William Atherton. In my notes, I wrote, he's playing like a Kirkland brand Geraldo Rivera. Atherton's a great actor, okay? Oh, this is the media guy. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like, let me remind people, because people forget this. He's in this movie called The Day of the Locust, which is one of the best movies about Hollywood ever, and he's awesome in that. But the thing is, he did this little movie called Ghostbusters, and that led to basically a career of playing these sniveling, whiny, awful, annoying authority types. It just... You know, and he's so good at it. People just like, okay, we're going to put him in this. We're going to put him in real genius. Like he just, he kind of like this, he got typecast. And all the same, like he's great in this movie. But I just want to remind people that he's actually a really great actor because no one really remembers that. But anyway, he's awesome in this. He's playing this, he's playing like the definitive awful tabloid journalist. Mm-hmm. All right. Now we, Powell and John are on the walkies and... John just tells him all that he knows, but doesn't give away that he's a cop. Yeah. But Al's smart enough. He's like, I think he's a cop. Yeah. You know? And then... These back and forth scenes are great, by yeah. the way. Yeah. I like, love it when they talk to each other on the walkie talkie. It's weird that they have got such good chemistry and they only have one scene together in this movie. Yeah. But I yeah. Know. Yeah. Willis and Carl Winslow are killer in this movie. <laughs> so then um, now Holly goes and talks to Hans and he's like, what idiot put you in charge? And she's like, you did. When you killed my boss, and man, I'm like, that's a Whoa. risky thing to say. I oh know. man, I wouldn't. Did she have a little bit of, uh, you know, Ellis's booger sugar before <laughs> she said that? Because, shoot, man, <laughs> I was just like, man, the balls on that lady, like, yeah. she's awesome. Because, uh, you know, they're killing people tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I was the second in command and my boss was just got his brains blown out, I'd be like, okay, we're just going to lay low, everybody. Or I would follow what she said with, kidding! <laughs> just kidding. Sorry, I'm an American. <laughs> and then Hans would be like, yeah, you're an idiot. Yeah. So, um, you know, she's she's kind of uh, expressing that everybody ne- has needs to go to the bathroom. And he's like, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. Then Argyle does learn about the attack from his little TV inside. (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of like, wait, what's going on? (laughs) Like in my building? He realizes he's locked in the the garage. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty great. So uh, now we have the SWAT team, the FBI, and... Well, we got... um... We got the guy who I always know as the as the principal from the Breakfast Club. Like this movie, I think maybe has a few too many stupid characters. It probably is more like yeah, Paul Gleason as the LAPD deputy chief, mm. and he becomes a foil for Carl Winslow because like he doesn't believe Carl and Al. And, you know, and, and Mr. Winslow is, like, trying to convince the LAPD chief. And like, no, like, again, like, yeah, he's a cop, whatever. So, like, Paul Gleason is playing a guy just, like, just whatever the truth is, he will not acknowledge it. Yeah. It's it, very – I mean, if this movie has – If this movie has a bone to pick with anybody, it's people in Los Angeles. Oh, Don't really? you think? Well, I think it I think it has a bone to pick with it's – the, It's the street smart guy from New Jersey who's, like, playing all the angles in this movie. Yeah, but – the, I think the bone is with the F, the feds and the head of the LAPD because they're just like, we have to do things by the book. And they're not willing to like think outside the box at all. Unlike John McClane. Yeah. And Al, you know? Carl Winslow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, all right. So the SWAT team gets, you know, they've let, they light up the building. The SWAT team tries to get in. 
uh, oh, you love this, where the bad guys are like the most important out. scene of the film, where this terrorist, who's a, I'll pull up his name, a character actor who was also in Big Trouble in Little China, um, he is uh, he mans a uh, because you know a good, like any good terrorist, he goes you know where he's needed, which is behind a candy counter, <laughs> and while, <laughs> while he's there, while he's waiting to see who he's going to shoot, he, yeah, you know what he has like a, a chocolate bar. Uh, yeah, I mean, he has a Hershey's bar, and then they cut to him later. It looks like he's having a crunch bar. I wish this movie just kept cutting back to this guy. This is like just like rappers everywhere. Yeah. He like goes as far down like he has a Zagnut bar, and then it's like a Fruit Nut bar. Like just – you don't know. This this could be this could be your last stand. Just do it, man. Sour Patch Kids. Yeah, man. Keep yeah. going. Keep going. Yeah, you were like, this is great. <laughs> like, I love this guy. Yeah, I think it's – um. let's see – Al Lung, yeah, Al Lung, yeah. I, I, I always remember him from uh, Big Trouble in Little China. He's a, he's such a cool looking character actor. He's like one of the most recognizable, and uh, yeah, I mean, he's for me, he's the most relatable of the terrorists. Because oh, he has a chocolate obsession. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought, you know, I mean, the whole thing about being a terrorist, I'm not really down for that. But oh, this guy just like to sit behind a counter, like he's got his machine gun. He's like, ooh, a Snickers. Yeah, I, <laughs> I get it. What about? There's okay, me in this movie. The 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 tech terrorist guy oh the techie guy oh yeah. theo yeah theo. he's uh he's irritating which i think is cool i think that's a that's a nice idea i like i like that the tech guy is he's so he's so different from the rest of them and he's obnoxious but clearly carl uh, carl hans recognizes the value in him well he's the only one who can get into this vault and so he knows he is the only one with this particular set of skills he seems like he and ellis are buying from the same guy don't you oh. think? Because he has he has that you know that exuberance and confidence that he really shouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. But he's the one who's watching you know the security cameras, and he's like telling the terrorists like where the SWAT people are, and yeah, he's he just has that annoying way. He's about kind him. of insufferable, but the editing in this film is good enough. What it keeps cutting back to our dozens of characters. Like for one thing, I'm always happy to see what what Theo's doing because he's he's fun, and same with the thing with Argyle. Like yeah, I think the. The way the movie juggles all the narrative threads, I think it works. Mm-hmm. All right, so the the um, the bad guys, they they basically get like a huge, I don't know, rocket launcher. And one of the rocket launcher terrorists, by the way, is Wilhelm von Hanberg, who played Vigo the Carpathian a year later in Ghostbusters Two. Mm. So keep an eye out, folks. Vigo the Carpathian, back when he was alive, before he was a ghost that haunts a painting. In Ghostbusters too, <laughs> he's loading the the missile that 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 destroys the tank. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the guy, you know, Theo's just like, come on, come on, like move it, guys. And it's like these people are carrying like massive weapons. Right. Yeah, I mean, they have to like bolt it into the ground before they can shoot it. It's pretty cool. And, they, and uh, but again, like these are guerrilla soldiers. Clearly, they've done this before. They're they're quite fast. They're very good at it. Yeah. So SWAT guys are getting shot at. The armored car, you know, gets a rocket launcher sent to it. And then, you know, John is just like, what are you doing? So he sends a bunch of C4 down the elevator shaft to just, like, get their attention. Like, hello, I told <laughs> you great. there is C4 in this building and you're just going to, like, do the playbook. Yeah. So. It's an amazing moment. Um because I, I love it that it takes everybody by surprise and part of the building just explodes. It's it's a great bit. And the part where the fire rolls up the 
the uh, the elevator shaft. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. this is a, you know to say to put it mildly, it's a, this is an exciting movie. It just the action just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The special effects are wonderful. Everybody's doing it with conviction, and uh, McTiernan is a you know he wound up being one of our greatest action movie directors. But more on that later. So then the the sniveling chief of police is like, I want to talk to that guy to John, and he's like, You just destroyed a building. John's just like. Oh no, who cares? And then you see Argyle listening in to the conversation. Yeah, laughing at Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's, it's great. It's really funny. Yeah. I feel like, okay, you relate to the chocolate guy. <laughs> I, you relate I to Argyle? Like, yeah. I relate to Argyle just like listening in on a conversation and just like cracking up because it's so funny. I think, you know what I think could have worked because uh, Devereaux White plays Argyle. He's so good in this. I wonder. If instead of the teddy bear, it's like him and his girlfriend on a date, do you think that could have worked? No. No? It has to be him doing the solo thing? Yeah, because... Because, I mean, I still want... By the way, I still want my Argyle standalone movie where it's him and the teddy bear in the back and it's just him in the limo. I still want well, that. I'm okay, still down for that. Okay, but how would you realistically... Like, how would he have a girl in the limo if he picks up John at the airport and drives him to... Hey, baby. Remember who this is? That's right. Hey, you know where the Nakatomi building is? Okay, meet me in the parking lot at 1030. This guy's going yeah, upstairs. Yeah, but he's locked in. Well, they're both locked in together. So she has to arrive before the terrorists. In, in the in the subtitle from the movie, when it finally gets released, would be Die Hard, Date Night. <laughs> and then, oh, okay. I mean, if she showed up before... Yeah. terrorist yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. she's down there and they're exactly. like having a little party yeah yeah i think that could have worked yeah that could have been funny you know but then he I'm, I'm with you i like the dynamic as is i'm just saying like he's so dynamic and the character is so fun and that scenario down there is so enjoyable i you know he's doing fine with the teddy bear but obviously i think it would have been fun if he had someone else to play off of yeah yeah that's true Okay, well, now this is where Ellis tries to negotiate oh, with Hans. Man. And he did Spreggensy talk, huh? <laughs> oh, man. Whatever his Coke got dusted with, man. Yeah. This is, wow. I Powerful know. stuff. He's like, Hans, booby, baby. Like, okay, man. no, yeah. this is bad. This is bad, Ellis. I figure you're here to negotiate. Am I right? You're amazing. You figured this all out already. <laughs> Hey, business is business. You use a gun, I use a fountain pen. What's the difference? Let's put it in my terms. You're here in a hostile takeover. You grab us for some green mail, but you didn't expect some poison pill was going to be running around in the building. Am I right? Hans, Bobby, I'm your white knight. I must have missed 60 minutes. What are you saying? I can give him to you. I don't think Gordon Gecko ever had this kind of confidence. No. Gordon Gecko wouldn't put himself in like physical danger like this. A Gordon Gecko could I think he would be good at negotiating, but I think he, he can read the room better than Ellis can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ellis is acting like he's a game show host. Yeah, Gordon, he's like, yeah. I can get him for you. I can get John for you. Mind you, he just met John for the first time. Yeah. Like and spent Two minutes with him. Yeah, and he's acting like he's Richard Dawson on like Family Feud. Like, yeah, his it's it's real smarmy. Yeah, again, like I love the choices the actors making because it's a it's very broad, 
But but you know we also hate this character, so it's kind of fun to watch just how doomed he is over the course of a couple minutes. Like the best part is when he's talking to John Ellis's, and he's like, "Give them the detonators, or they'll kill me." And then he like gives a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> gives Hans like a thumbs up, like, "Yeah, yeah, pretend you're gonna kill me." And I guess they like this scene is suspenseful, not because I mean I don't really care about about Ellis, but there is a moment where you think Ellis is going to tell Hans. Who John's wife is. Right. That moment, I, I remember the first time I saw it, it's like, oh God. And th- and it winds up being like, oh, you're just, you're being a dick. Like, yeah. get off the phone, man. Yeah. 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 He's just trying to like end this night, like end the hostage situation, yeah. but he's not doing yeah, a good job. He's doing the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, John does try to save him by saying, like, Hans, I don't know him. I just met him. He doesn't know. know the kind of guy that you are. Yeah. 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 But Ellis gets his brains blown out. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Bye-bye, Ellis. Moment of silence for, for Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> and then, all right, so now Hans... Okay, this is the part where he asks... You know, he he talks to the chief of police and he's like, I want my revolutionary brothers and sisters to be set free. And he starts naming like all of these, you know, random people around the world. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, you know, do you think they're going to do it? And he's like, who cares? Like, so again, it's all BS. He's just, he knows the playbook by heart. And so he's just making the feds like, he's just making them do busy work. All right, well, this is now where the FBI shows up. I was a little premature. I don't like this. Yeah, this is Agents Johnson and Johnson. No relation. (laughs) The movie does not need this. I... You yeah, I mean they need the helicopter to crash. That's it. We do, but they do need the FBI to show up. I guess, but technically, and I like Robert Davi. Robert Davi is a great character actor. Both these guys are good, and they're, they're fine in it. But I just I don't like this part of it. Okay. Well, they kind of they take over, and of course, in every movie, the the regular cops hate it when the feds take over. Yeah. So you have that whole thing. Okay, but now your favorite scene where we have Hans on the roof checking checking things out. Yeah. And he runs into John, and this is where they kind of realize who each other is, but they don't tell each other. It's an interesting bit because this cat and mouse. As someone reminded me recently. The idea, and for me, it doesn't quite play. The idea is that when Hans blows Takagi's brains out, John can't see who Hans is. He hears him, but he can't see him. I don't know if I completely buy that. But that's supposed to be an added element of suspense here because John has heard what Hans sounds like and vice versa, but they've never seen each other. Right. I buy that because... You don't think John McClane could have seen Hans from that vantage point underneath the desk? I think he could have. And I don't think it I was think very a, clear. And I don't think it was like a straight on, maybe a side profile briefly. I think it's a little bit of a reach, but okay. And as you were noting too, like it's 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 a little fuzzy exactly when... I mean, the actors play the moment of recognition pretty well. But at the same time, it's it is a little bit like it like the cat and mouse goes on back and forth a few times because it's like they're shocked to see each other and they both play it very neutral so that they don't give it away and then it becomes like this slow realization of who the other person is. Um, 
but uh, you know, I'm being critical of it. I love this scene. This is my favorite in the film. Um, I love that these two characters are meeting each other this way. I love that they're um, in full performance mode. Uh, the whole bit where where Hans could just grab a gun and blow him away, but like you know, it becomes like okay, let's let's see where this goes. And it's it's fun to see Hans in a completely different mode here. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is he's doing this grift as hard as he can. And then when John hands him the gun, but it's empty, Hans doesn't know that. And then he goes to shoot him and he's like, what do you think? I'm an idiot. <laughs> and then the, the ding in the elevator rings and he goes, you're saying. And then the movie explodes into violence. This yes. is like, oh, so thrilling. It's so gory. There's a shot in it that's pretty spectacular where it's underneath a desk and John McClane enters, empties his machine gun into a guy's kneecaps. And it looks oh, like his man. kneecaps just turn into Hamburger Helper. It's wow. Like, man, I forgot how crazy violent this movie is. Yep. And then um, Hans knows he's barefoot. So he just tells Carl, yeah. like, shoot the glass. And it's it's just an all-out... It's you know it's cool insanity. that I like it. Yeah, it justifies the whole barefoot shirtless thing. You know, it's like yeah, we'll, we'll make it part of the story. He's going to use it against him, which is yeah, very mm-hmm. wise. Yeah, yeah. All right, so he get he gets away. Now we have you know Theo's keeping Hans up to date on where they are with the vault. Yeah, and the FBI shuts off the power. The vault opens, and Oda Joy plays in the soundtrack for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, but I just I love it so much. I, I love Ode to Joy. Um, I don't think I've ever loved it more in this movie because, for one thing, it's instrumental, and then over the end credits, which we'll talk about later, it's in German, mm. which I think is I just think it sounds better in German than in English. Yeah, I joyful, didn't... joyful. No, like I don't German. think I realized. Yeah, it's better. It's better in German. <laughs> well, now John is pulling glass shards out of his feet. Man, this is this is wonderful. Okay, action movies in this decade are rarely, if ever, this character-driven, and we never see characters this vulnerable. I mean, you know, the wonderful contrast. The same summer that this movie comes out, it's the Rambo 3 scene. I've talked about it on prior episodes where Rambo has been shot. He's got a, a, a hole through one side of his, his uh, torso or another. He puts some – he peppers – some gunpowder on it sits in a fire and goes, Ugh! and the and the and the wound gets caterized right then and there. Versus this, where where John McClane is bleeding profusely from his feet, and he's pulling shards of glass out of his feet. He's crying. Yeah, he's talking to Al. Yeah, and then Al it matches his vulnerability and tells him a story about why he is the kind of cop that he is, and it's beautiful. Carl Winslow should have got an Oscar nomination for this performance. No, it is really touching. Listen, man, I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. I want you to do something for me. Um, I want you to find my wife. Don't ask me how. By then, you'll know how. Uh, I want you to tell her something. I want you to tell her that... Um, I told her it took me a while to figure out... Ah, uh, what a jerk I've been. But, um... That... That when things started to pan out for her, I should have... been more supportive. And, uh... I just should have been behind her more. 
tell her that, um, that she is the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. And I want you to tell her that, Alan. I want you to tell her that uh, John said that he was sorry. Okay? You got that, man? Yeah, I got it, John. But you can tell her that yourself. You just watch your ass and you'll make it out of there. You hear me? Like I said, something a man upstairs. Terry Gilliam has said that he sought out hiring Bruce Willis for 12 Monkeys based on this scene. It's like, mm. okay, this is a guy who is playing, you know, a macho cop, but you look at him in this scene, like he is vulnerable. It's like this guy can clearly he's got a lot of abilities in his toolbox as an actor, and I completely agree. Mm-hmm. And let me just say really quickly, because I don't want to forget this, when this film came out, the reviews were not kind. I do remember one vividly. I had it in this magazine that said, oh, Die Hard's great, but, you know, Bruce Willis is acting. Let's just say the Fox Tower is a better actor than he is. I disagree. That's and I terrible. Compl- it's it really mean. People went after him. They went after him because he got $5 million for it, and everyone's like, they, they overpaid him. They shouldn't have paid him this much. Um, and I will admit, I will be the first to admit, I remember vividly watching Entertainment Tonight with my mom in the afternoon, and it's like, now a scene from Die Hard. And at this point, we knew Willis as David Addison from Moonlighting. We'd never, you know, this is the first time. So they show just the, and we'll talk about it in a second. Well, the they show the rooftop scene where Willis jumps off the rooftop. That whole sequence they showed on Entertainment Tonight, and we were laughing because it's like this is this like a parody of an action movie? How silly to see this this actor in this. And look, we're watching this scene completely out of context. You're 11, and you're laughing at Bruce Willis. I was eleven. I was laughing at Bruce because again, like it just seems so ridiculous. I mean, like this guy. I mean, it would be like seeing Tim Allen in that context, you know, like a guy who I only knew as a TV actor at that point, a comedy TV actor, and that scene out of context, it just it seemed kind of ridiculous. Um, but anyway, to say the least, by this point in the film, you're completely on board, and he's he nails it from the very beginning because there is a world weariness, there's a sadness. Willis's best performances have always reminded me of Bogart. It's not only because like he's got the lines in his face, you got a guy who's tired, you got a guy who's like carrying a lot of emotions on his shoulders. Well now we have, you know, John trying to figure out why Hans was on the roof. He's like, Hans, what were you doing up there? You know, talking to himself. And um then he finds the, all the C4, like enough to destroy the entire building. And then Carl finds John, and this is where they have their epic final fight. Carl's played by the late Alexander Goodenough. I think most people remember him from uh, Witness, where it's like he's basically fighting Harrison Ford over Kelly McGillis. Um, Goodenough was an acclaimed ballet dancer, and boy, can you tell. from I mean, look how graceful he is during this fight. It's a very different kind of fight than before. I don't know if his martial arts holds up, but in terms of his movements, I mean, it's, it's beautiful <laughs> versus Willis, who's just, you know, just throwing these punches um, this is another fantastic fight scene. At one point, Willis takes him by the hair and it's smack, smacking his head. It's like, again, it's, like, it's it's rough. It's great. Yeah, and hangs him by a chain. Yeah, that part's really rough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now our, our slimy reporter goes to Holly's house. Oh, thre- I hate this scene so much. Threatens Paulina with the INS. I hate this. And puts her kids on TV. 
And then that's when Hans figures out who Holly is. Yeah. I think there might have been a cleaner, easier way to get to this plot point because it's it's all about the revelation. Yeah. About who Holly is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that we really need another scene with Paulina, let alone, you know, but at the same time, we're trying, you know, the the movie is establishing, there's a punchline for a literal punchline with at William Atherton at the end of the film that the movie's building towards. But again, I think the film is already very busy, but okay. 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 So now, um, now Hans knows that Holly is married to John, and so he's like, "Yeah, you're you're coming with me because you're going to be my hostage." And then all the other people are taken up to the roof, and this is now that um, Carl is dead. John is like, "All of you, like, get off the roof because it's going to blow." And then we have our feds, Johnson and Johnson, just like. Riding around on these helicopters, like talking about Vietnam. Yeah. And there's a scene, uh, there's a quick scene earlier where Johnson and Johnson want the power in the building cut off. And the guy who cuts the power is Rick Duckerman playing this hard hat wearing city worker. Rick Duckerman was the neighbor, the annoying neighbor in the Burbs. Oh, yeah. I wanted to point that out that he's actually in this. He's basically, and he, by the way, he plays almost the same bit in Gremlins too. Anyway, fun fact. (laughs) So yeah, so this is the, this is the amazing scene where John McClane, I mean, he does a really heroic thing. He scares the hell out of the hostages and and fires a machine gun in the air, gets them off of, of of the roof. So the hostages are running back downstairs and he stays up there and, you know, in a moment's notice, he's like, okay, like I'm going to tie this hose <laughs> around my waist. Fire hose around my waist and jump off the building as it explodes. Mm. Um, it's a spectacular shot. It still looks amazing. It still looks like a real building goes up. I mean, you know, Richard Edlund was Oscar nominated for these special effects and they, they still look great. You can't really tell where the model work begins and ends. Um so Willis does a Tarzan down the side of the building. And again, this is the scene that I saw out of context. I'm like, that looks ridiculous. Watch it in the context of the movie. It's pretty amazing. And there's – I got to say there's a shot that always – it really like – I kind of grip something every time I see it. It's the shot – Willis smashes through the window, which is spectacular. But the receiving end of the fire hose, which has the big crank, falls off the side yeah. of the building and it's pulling Willis down because he's still yeah. he's still got it around his waist. So the shot – the POV – it's a POV shot of Willis being pulled down by the fire hose rack. It always freaks me out because, I mean, he's getting pulled. There's no way to stop it. And there's like these pieces of wood that are very carefully they're, – they're helping you know the, the momentum. Anyway, like I, I'm in my 40s. I've seen this movie how many times? Every time I see it, You're always like, he's gonna go. I always again. grip something like, oh my god, yeah, <laughs> scares me. Yeah. Well, he does untie himself, and yeah, the movie doesn't end there. No, but <laughs> but then we get to see Argyle, you know, finally have his big hero moment. Yes, he does. Yeah, and he um, he sees he, put, he sees Theo. Yeah, in a. Ambulance. ambulance and he takes his limo and he runs it into the ambulance and then he punches Theo out and he's just look he's so proud of himself. It's funny because I mean our our hero McLean is up thirty stories, you know, killing bad guys and saving the day. And Argyle in his world, this is the most heroic this is like this is his big heroic moment, yeah, which is yeah, great. Yeah. Which I think is fun. Yeah. Um all right, now John, he's shirtless, he's sweaty, he's he tapes a gun to his back. Mm-hmm. And this is when he goes in to save Holly. Yeah. I really like this scene. It's great. I mean, when Willis appears in the doorframe, 
he is in silhouette and there's these sparks coming off the wall. It feels mythic. Yeah. It feels like this is the final showdown. This is the true, you know, I mean, they've been making allusions to Westerns. Like this is the good cowboy and the bad cowboy meeting for the last time. It does feel like, oh man, this is, mm-hmm. this is it. Mm-hmm. And I love it. And Willis, because he finds the humor in almost every scene. He goes, hi, honey. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does end up saving Holly and... But there's that there's that moment where, you know, it looks like like Hans is going to take her with him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah cuz he's holding on to her watch. Yeah, Rickman like he's got it's in slow motion. There's a moment where he kind of looks at, he turns to the camera, looks right at her, it always kind of chills me. And then he does that scary fall backwards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rickman really did that. I mean, he fell onto a um, a blue screen balloon, but it was like a – it's like a two or three story drop falling backwards. And they, you know, they – using blue screen effects, they put the background in later. But, I mean, he actually was falling backwards off a high, high perch. And apparently the director, McTiernan, John McTiernan said – yeah, we uh, we said we're going to drop you on three, and apparently they dropped him on two. So the reaction on his face is the real deal. Oh, yeah, smart. Yeah, I don't know that Rickman really liked that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's an iconic movie moment. And boy, does it look scary and so incredible as we're watching him fall and the lights in the background. Like it's, yeah, it's and a then all the cops shot. are watching him fall from the ground, and they're like, "I hope that's a terrorist." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay, so John and Holly, like, hug and kiss, even though he's all bloody and sweaty, and they're just happy to be alive. Officer Powell and McLean meet, and it's like, oh, this is a brotherhood among cops. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is like, like yeah, you, you do get a sense of the camaraderie, the brotherhood that's been established over the course of the film. It's nice. Yes, and then Carl shows up. Just, <laughs> Carl is still alive. I don't know how Carl... Gets down from the chain that are that's around his I neck. I think the implication is if you watch his if you watch the last scene where Carl is hanging by the chains, it looks like he might have his fingers over the chain, like maybe like keeping a little bit of airflow going. He was just waiting for his moment. Um, I don't know. I'm guessing. Yeah, and Al saves the day by actually shooting him, and he hadn't pulled his gun on on anybody. Officer Powell returns to being a stone cold killer. Hooray! <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and um, you were noting that there's just... An, there's so much paper. Yeah. And it's like, are they, is that the bearer bonds? I'm like... I think it's just office copy. Does Nakatomi... Paper. I mean, does Nakatomi building... I mean, do they make paper? Is it like... Is it like Dunder Mifflin? It's crazy how much paper is raining from this building. There's an unnatural amount. I think all the copier machines exploded. You figured the paper would be on fire, but yeah, no. I mean, it's raining like snow. It's look, it's a cool visual, but it's at the same time like, why is there still paper falling out of this building? Unless it's like the barabons. Were there barabons on every floor? No, I think it's just copier paper. I think it's just funny. Like it's, it's supposed to. I think. I think that John McTiernan was like. It's LA. We can't have snow. So let's just. Do you think it's like Xerox copies of Ellis's ass that he was like handing out to everybody at the party? (laughs) It was like one of those things. Oh, man. The last thing he ever did. (laughs) This is how we remember him. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. 
So yeah, the end credits roll. It's Ode to Joy in German. No, no. Holly punches out. Oh, that's right. Yeah, to set up the movie really neat. Yeah, punches out William Atherton. Did you get that? Yeah. Yeah. And um, John tells, you know... He's he's not going to talk to the cops because he's like, I want a full report. And he's like, I'm not doing that. So they get into Argyle's limo and kiss and drive off. Let me talk about uh, Michael Kamen's wonderful score for a second. It's quirky. That's one of the things I love about the music to this film. Like the main theme, it sounds like out of tune jingle bells. You notice that? Mm. Like the main, like it sounds like these jingle bells that are just a little, little tinny, a little out of tune. But it's it, it's a really quirky kind of score. Like it's not consistently – it's just not like the, the typical 80s music score. It's not all drum machine. It's very orchestral. It's beautiful. The person who told me this movie was good, which I, I thought was pretty cool actually, I just, and I have a fond memory of this because this movie opens and, you know, again, like the reviews are bad and I was really paying attention to this summer. This is like I think the first summer – where I was really watching like box office and I was really attentive, like what was opening on a week to week basis. Cause Roger Rabbit came out and Roger Rabbit's a big movie for me. So my father sees this movie opening weekend and he comes home and he's raving about it. My father was the first person I ever met who like loved Die Hard. He's like, you got to see it, Bear. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's rated R, but like, you know, I think you could handle it. And he's like, oh, Willis is so funny in this. Like, he's not playing David Addison. It's, 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 you know, my father raved about this movie and, and I'm like, really? The one where he jumps out of the building without his shirt on? That's that, that dumb looking movie? No, like my – yeah, my dad was the first person I met who like was like, this is like a great film. Like, really? And of course, you know, and the film – the movie didn't even open up at number one. I don't think it ever hit number one. It just kind of – it hung in there. But like the word of mouth on it was just like it made it one of the biggest hits of the year. It was a total shock, total surprise. It beat every other action movie that came out that summer. And Bruce Willis, suddenly the $5 million is like, yeah, we got him at a bargain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, the film wouldn't work if we didn't care about John McClane because, I mean, this was the age of the super muscle, roided out action hero. You know, whether we're talking about Chuck Norris or all the way up to Arnold and Sly, where all those guys, you know, they do their movies shirtless. They do their movies, you know, with the biggest body counts, the biggest budgets. Um, and this is that kind of a movie, except it does seem at times like John McClane could really eat it, you know. And it's uh, it, even the scene where he's talking to to Al over over the the walkie-talkie in the bathroom when he's pulling out the the glass. the glass. You do get the sense like this could be his last stand. This could be the last conversation he ever has. The movie could end where he dies. It yeah, really yeah. could because we didn't know. Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, and I think that's one of the things that's that's important because a lot of these movies, it's like no, no, no. Sly is going to be alive at the end of The Specialist. There's no question. But uh, yeah, in this movie, like you do get a sense like he might die hard after all. Yeah, we don't know who's going to die hard. As opposed to hardly dying, which is another title. <laughs> that was another thing people said when it came out. Like, they named this movie after a battery. So stupid. I mean, everybody like had their you know had their had their poison pens out for this film, and yeah, and it, it wound up it it yeah, and look who laughed all the way to the bank. Okay, is there any scene that you would change? I think you can find a way to cut Johnson and Johnson out of this movie and the film would remain the same. Mm. I think you could just establish that the FBI are going through their playbook as Al as, as Al tells us, and I think you could just establish that there are helicopter pilots flying that helicopter that eventually explodes. I don't think you need 
more comic relief when the movie already has enough of them. Yeah. The movie has enough stupid characters, more than enough stupid characters. Mm. Uh, yeah, but no, otherwise, I mean, the one thing this movie probably, in fact, we know that the film did not have is that scene between Hans and McLean in the, in the, in the second act where they're encountering each other, where they're both at a disadvantage and at advantage. Um, that is a masterstroke, and that's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite movies because it, it's it's taking chances. As much as I'm critical of how overwritten the movie is, that's a nice quality. Most action movies are not overwritten, mm-hmm. overthought. It's based on this this book. I think Rod, Roderick Thorpe, I think, was the author of uh, Nothing Lasts Forever, and it's weird because the book I've read the novel. It's very faithful to the movie, but at the same time, the film is so much better. How do you feel about the sequels? Oh, I I like the sequels. Yeah, when people ask me like, "What's your favorite Die Hard sequel?" Like for me, my 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 top five Die Hard movies. It's order of appearance. I love mm-hmm. the first one, but then I'd say two, three, four, five. Yeah, yeah. I think the number one's the best one. Yeah, number yeah. one's definitely the best one. But yeah, I I love the second one. Three uh, is three's terrific, but it does have that second act that really crawls. Like the movie just just like literally explodes out of the running gate and then it's got this second act remember where it's just like and it's just a lot of like jeremy irons walking around like what are we doing yeah 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 um and live free or die hard i think is a lot better than people remember it's really a strong movie people didn't like the fact that john mcclain is like james bond in that movie but whatever he's he's he survived the nakatomi building of course he's gonna be awesome yeah he's gonna be fun and you know the the last one is the weak link and it's there's parts of it that aren't very well done the script has problems but i you know that's another one like i'm not saying it's a great film um although i think i said as much as the time when it came out that was one of those reviews i got a lot of a lot of uh, response to um oh you said it was great I think I, I think I said it, I, my angle on it was like just forget the first film, take this as it is, and enjoy. And people are like we're not going to forget the first film. Are you insane? <laughs> but I think the as much as Jai Courtney hasn't really impressed me over the years, I thought he was fine in that movie, and I think there's a number of scenes that really work. But it, it's yeah, that that film is it's very hit and miss. I'm not a big fan of him because I feel like his ego always shows up. Jai Courtney, yeah, really, yeah. I feel like he's. What else do you know him from? He was in... He's in Suicide Squad. The, um, ooh, okay. I'm not going to remember the name of it, but it's a Divergent series. Wow. I don't even... I, yeah. That's right. He is in that. Yeah. Wow. And, I'm impressed that you... That's a good pull. Well, I watched that not that long ago. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. In the last six months, I think I, I watched them all. I think there's probably... A, you know, I, I don't mean to be mean about Jai Courtney because I'm sure... You know, he already got a lot of crap about that movie, but... I think there's a lot of other actors who they wanted to see playing John McClane's son. Yeah, I mean, you know who they, for, yeah, you know who they try to get for what they actually did a street screen test with them. They really wanted him, and it wasn't working out. It was Justin Timberlake? Oh, interesting. You like that idea? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's it's kind of like you know when Shia LaBeouf tried to play. Harrison Ford's son. Yeah, it's just yeah. like you can't. It's tough shoes, and they're also it, setting it up for like, well, maybe we'll just have one with him down the line. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, because we don't want to see the son replace this beloved character that we all love. When it's kind of like, uh, it's uh, okay, it's okay. And yeah, with with I think it was called a good day to die hard. The last one, it just some of that stuff really works. I mean, the movie is just real, real hit and miss yeah. across the board. All right, so you give this one four stars? I do. 
Yeah. Yeah, I do. Like I said, like my, uh, you know, I've got some quibbles with it, but it's also like, it's nitpicking. I mean, yeah, this is. Agreed. Yeah. Although I will say, if I'm going to say anything negative about Die Hard, and it's not much of a negative thing at all, I actually like John McTiernan's next movie better, The Hunt for Red October. Oh. I actually like that one better. Really? Yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. I mean, if you were to say, what do you want to watch right now? I would pick Die Hard again. I would pick The Hunt for Red October. Yeah. Yeah. And I love Die Hard. I do. But yeah, Red October for me. I love that film. That's mm. my favorite McTiernan movie. And he directed Die Hard with a Vengeance. He did this Viking movie with Antonio Banderas called The 13th Warrior, which I think me and two other people in the world enjoyed. But I like that film. <laughs> and he did The Thomas Crown Affair with uh, Pierce Brosnan. Oh, which yeah, everybody loves I that love one. that movie. Yeah, that's everybody's favorite. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well... Do you have any other final thoughts? Um, it's okay that it's a Christmas movie, folks, because I think a Christmas movie doesn't need <laughs> to be – it doesn't need to have Rudolph and Frosty. No, a Christmas movie could just be a film where Christmas is the setting. That's perfectly fine. And, you know, you don't want a Christmas movie to be leaving Las Vegas about someone who loses their life or, you know, or, or is self-destructive. A Christmas movie, in theory, can be about resurrection or about um, – um, uh, fi- finding yourself, and both of those things are in this movie. Wow, who resurrected? Carl. Oh my gosh! At the end of the film, Carl is still alive. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, Officer Powell makes it even better. No, Merry Christmas, everyone! Oh my gosh! And then Argyle drives away in the limo. You know, a symbol for '80s power and success. <laughs> no. Okay. I think uh, I think that covers it, everyone. I think we've done it. <laughs> I'm going to cut this guy off. <laughs> All right. I think that concludes our discussion of the Die Hard. 